0: Hello, and welcome to Credo Catholic. If you're new to this show, please know that Credo Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We are a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and even though Credo Catholic is a brand new podcast, the Vernacular Podcast Network is not brand new, and we've been around for a while, and we try to promote human flourishing through thoughtful and engaging conversations and premier sound design. If you wanna find out more about the work of the Vernacular Podcast Network, head to vernacularpodcast.com, Or you can subscribe to any of the shows, including Credo Catholic, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to read more about the mission uh, or consider supporting us, go to patreon.com slash VPN for Vernacular Podcast Network. Once again, that's patreon.com slash VPN. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to Credo Catholic. I'm joined actually live and in person in the studio by Meg Hunter Kilmer, who you can find online at Hobo for Christ. If you just Google Hobo for Christ, that'll take you. To uh I what I assume is the first result, right?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge deal, yeah. actually. P-
0: and, and that'll take you to PierceHands.com or mm-hmm. HoboforChrist.com.
1: Yeah, I think any of them. Who cool. knows, really?
0: So, Meg, what do you mean by Hobo for Christ? When I so I I first encountered your work on Twitter, and I think in your Twitter byline it says hobo for Christ. And I was like, what in the world is this is this person? Who is this? And I read about what you chose to do in your story, and I thought it was pretty fascinating. So mm-hmm. Give me a 30-second snapshot of what you're doing
1: now. Yeah, I was talking to a a Protestant guy one time, and I said, yeah, so I'm a hobo missionary. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm Protestant. I don't know what that means. I was like, no, no, it doesn't. It's not a Protestant thing. It doesn't mean anything. Um, So I live out of my car. Uh, I used to be a regular person with like a house and a job and a dog and then about seven years ago I felt like God was calling me to follow him in a more literal way so I quit my job packed everything I own into the trunk of my car and started driving that's awesome for the last seven years I've been homeless and unemployed I've been to 50 states and 25 countries I've driven about 225,000 miles.
0: All on one car or have you got a new car? I
1: had to get a new car. Okay. Man, that first one was a hot mess, but it was good for my soul. Yeah. It wasn't so great for my wallet, but it was good for my soul.
0: So uh, what did you do with the dog when you became a hubbub? Uh,
1: the dog was a little bit earlier. Okay. I gotcha. The dog had passed on before that time.
0: So this was in 2012, seven years yeah. ago. And I mean, I guess just like practically speaking, you just couch surf when you go into different towns you have host families from churches put you yeah up.
1: yeah so I don't sleep in my car right. people's moms are that's always like safe. oh my gosh you sleep in your car right. and I'm like no I sleep in strangers houses." and they're like oh that's better and I'm like is it <laughs> yeah it's not
0: necessarily better I don't
1: know if it is but nobody's tried to serial kill me yet so it seems to be working out I'm glad to hear that <laughs> yeah I've never once had to get a hotel room
0: okay so you said you felt like God was calling you to follow him in a more literal way mm-hmm. what did that what did that feel like or sound like or how did you know what so was it that prompted you to do that?
1: One of the one of the big things <clears throat> that I feel like we have to talk about when we're talking discernment is that you have got to be making time for silent prayer in your day, not because you're asking questions, but because you're trying to draw near to the Lord. And so I kinda wanna I wanna put that in as sort of a caveat at the beginning that we often we worship ourselves in prayer. You know, we use God as a magic eight ball and we, we go to prayer and we're demanding, like, God is this sadistic leprechaun sending us on a scavenger hunt and there are signs and all of this nonsense. And I'm like, no, like stop seeking God's will and start seeking God. And so I feel like that's, that's a really important foundation when you're talking discernment is to be in a state of grace and to be spending time with the Lord just because you love him. So that's like, that's where I was coming from. And I was, uh, working at a boarding school and living in the dorm at this boarding school in rural Kansas. And I loved teaching. I'd been a teacher for five years and I, oh my gosh, I love teaching so much. Like creepy loved teaching. So like Sunday nights, I was like, oh my gosh, it's almost Monday, yeah, yeah. which is not normal. Right. Nobody feels right. that way. about I, Mondays. I've never felt that way. About no, I don't else. think anybody has. <laughs> yeah. And I, um, I loved teaching so much. And then all of a sudden I didn't like dramatic shift. I am naturally a really angry person. I get angry super easily. Um, And in four and a half years in the classroom, I had been angry two times. And I was like, this is a miracle, right? Like, and I assume
0: these were like extreme cases of students disrespecting you.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah. Accusing me of giving hard tests to sabotage them so they wouldn't get into college. Naturally, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's that's what every teacher wants to do. That is the reason we become teachers is to ruin (laughs) people's lives. So two times in four and a half years. And I was like, this is a miracle, right? Right. I'm angrier more than that. Just walking from the car to the grocery store, let alone when you get inside the grocery store, right? The trouble is that I taught for five years and that last semester god withdrew the grace and i i mean like three times a week i would get so angry i would have to turn around and stop talking and rest my head on the board and breathe deeply so as not to chuck norris some kid in the face like it was bad and i'm not saying if things get hard run but i'm saying if things are supernaturally hard pay attention right if everything external is the same and the internal has changed you got to listen to that so i took it to prayer and Again, with discernment, I think we have to remember that we are body and soul. And so the first thing I did is I looked at like the balance in my life, right? And so a lot of times I think... You'll go to prayer and you'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm so anxious about this. And you'll be like, oh no, I slept for three hours and had five espressos. I'm high. I'm not, this is not the Holy Spirit speaking. This is my body. And so I was like, okay, I am, I'm living in a dorm. I don't have a car. I'll buy a car. Like I just feel trapped. That's a problem. So I got a car and that didn't fix it. And I was like, all right, Jesus. And I prayed about staying. And I was like, okay, what if it's this like perfect imaginary scenario where I can sleep until noon and I can wear jeans and I only teach orphans because you know, sometimes the parents are not (laughs) the easiest part of being an educator. And I just, I still felt a lot of anxiety about going back to the same school the next year. And I prayed about leaving. I felt a lot of peace. So I was like, great. So I pull out my Excel spreadsheet of all the different schools that I want to teach at and their average SAT and their curriculum and how many saints went there because I'm insane. Right. (laughs) And I was like, I guess I should pray about not teaching just like real quick. Like that's not going to be a thing. The last time right, I prayed right. about not teaching, I literally had a panic attack and almost crashed my car. And so this time I prayed in a chapel just, you know, for the common good. Yeah. Just for your basis. Right. Exactly. And I felt this resounding peace and I was like, Jesus, what do you want me to do with this? Like I have a master's degree in theology. Right. That and a winning personality will get you a second interview at McDonald's. This is not a lucrative degree. And that, uh, I was talking to a priest friend of mine and he was like, well, you've been wanting to do more public speaking. Like you're really good at that. And I was like, yeah, father, that's cute. You can't just quit life and be a public speaker.
0: It doesn't just pay the bills.
1: Exactly. Like that's not a, that's not a thing. Right. And I took it to prayer and I just felt the Lord say, tell me why not. And I don't hear voices when I pray. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people do. And that's cool. But you know, like when you're really spending serious time, just seeking the heart of the father, there's sometimes that you just know, and I couldn't come up with a reason not to be homeless and unemployed. Um, and I'm like super type A, very achievement oriented. And I was coming up on like my 10 year reunion at, from high school where like, like a dozen of my classmates work at NASA and like the other the rest of them are all like Silicon Valley CEOs. Right. And I was like, great idea. Gonna go to my high school reunion and tell everybody I live in a car. And it honestly seemed like a good idea. And I was like, that has to be from the Lord, right? If you find yourself really drawn to something that's contrary to your natural inclinations, again, it's something that you have to pay attention to, right? I always tell people, not in matters of the heart, though. Your heart is stupid. In matters of the heart, listen to your mother and your roommates, yes, you know, definitely. like, oh my gosh, I'm not usually into guys in who are felons, but like, this one, <laughs> like, no, 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 no.
0: Well, I think it makes sense, though. It's, it's sort of like the, the uh, you know, teaching of the church that you have to follow your conscience mm-hmm. but it has to be a well-formed conscience mm-hmm. right And so the same thing if you have a deep desire that is on your heart and you're spending a lot of time in prayer and you're continually seeking god then that thing that's on your heart is probably something that's from god
1: right or if it's not it's not your fault right and this i think is a huge point in discernment vocational discernment are like discerning a move discerning a new job discerning having another child all of these things like god is not going to punish you for being an idiot if you are Genuinely seeking him, and I always tell right, people, right. I'm, I'm like pretty sure I'm going to go to my judgment, and she's going to be like, "Baby, you thought I wanted you to be a hobo? Like, that was
0: not the plan. That is
1: not a thing. Nobody does that." And I'm going to look at him and be like, "I mean," and he's going to say, "Oh, but honey, you tried so hard, right? Right?" Like I think even if I'm doing something totally idiotic, I think the Lord is so delighted in how earnestly I am trying to please and serve Him, and I, I just trust that if I'm spending this time in prayer, either God is going to form my heart to desire what He desires. Or he's going to stop me before I do something, or he's going to fix it afterwards. And I don't have to be like anxious and stressed that I might mess up because all he asks is that I, is that I run after him. And if I'm dumb and running all wonky, the wrong direction, he's like, okay, well then I guess we're going that way. We'll do this.
0: How do you think that people should evaluate their natural gifts in relation to their calling? And I guess the second part of that question would be, what about their natural weaknesses in relation to their calling? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think Christ often calls us to things that are counter to our natures or maybe not counter to our natures, but wouldn't, at least wouldn't be our first instinct, right? You know, grace perfects nature, right? but sometimes it takes a lot of perfecting to get you there. Mm -hmm. And so I think Christ often calls us out of our comfort zone to do something like live out of our car and preach the gospel to people on the street. But um, that could be a really difficult thing for someone who is, afraid of public speaking or who, mm-hmm. who who really values the security of having a house and a shelter to call home, those sorts of things. So how do you balance those things in relation to yeah, I discerning think, a vocation?
1: I think it's a really tricky thing. Um, you know, when you quoted that line from Aquinas, grace builds on nature. And that's absolutely true. But I think also sometimes grace comes in like a wrecking ball and destroys nature. Right. And I always think of blessed Stanley Rother, you know, the Oklahoma farm boy who was martyred in Guatemala. Yeah, um, He was, he was successful in his ministry in Guatemala as a priest because he was a farm boy and he could connect with them on that. And people are always like, oh my gosh, it's like just because of who he was by nature. And I, and I'm like, yes, absolutely. But also he was so bad at Latin. He got kicked out of seminary and yet he was able to learn this indigenous language that only 35,000 people in the world speak and preach extemporaneously in this language. So like, Sometimes in the same person I think usually in the same person God is purifying and perfecting one area and like building up something that is natural to you and then purifying and perfecting in another area by by really doing the opposite. So right. I am naturally very very much a homebody. I really like plans. I like control and that is completely the opposite of the life that God has called me to. But I'm also very extroverted. And I am a, a good public speaker, and I do really enjoy speaking. Um, and and there's a lot of wisdom that the Lord has given me through that. And so it's it's a balance, right? There are parts of my life where the Lord is saying, this is a gift that I've given you, and I want to amplify that. And there are parts of my life where the Lord is saying, this is your natural inclination, and in order to purify it, I need to pull you in the other direction. And I think that the best way to figure out in terms of discernment is to look at your disinclination towards something and say, okay, does this disinclination come from sin? Does it come from selfishness or is it like really authentically just who I am? You know, like if you're introverted, don't spend your life living in other people's houses, you know, like it would be hell to live my life as an introvert. It would be utter hell and it wouldn't be purifying and it wouldn't be life-giving. It would just be disastrous. But for me, the need to control is not, It's not a healthy thing, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a lack of trust. And so the Lord has asked me to live a way that I would never have chosen because that's teaching me to trust him better. And it's teaching me to love him more. So I think it helps, I mean, to look at your natural gifts and also your supernatural gifts, right? Like what your particular charisms are, God is going to amplify those charisms because that's something that he gives you for a reason. And then look at your other inclinations and disinclinations and ask yourself, is this something that's like, is this something that could be a part of my hagiography right like if i'm a canonized saint are people going to look at this and be like wow isn't it beautiful how the lord worked in her shyness isn't it beautiful how the lord worked in her desire to live in a stable setting or are people going to look at that and be like? wow, it's a good thing. God worked against that, right? It's a good thing. You know, like you look at St. Jerome and his temper, while it gives me great hope is something that you're like, wow, it's a good thing. God spent, spent all of Jerome's life purifying that temper because otherwise that dude would have been a lot of trouble.
0: Right. That makes sense. Well, let's talk about charisms. Then you mentioned that you're good at public speaking. That's something that God has given you. And it's something that he's called you to use as you're on the road. I was on your blog and looked at a blog post from, I think it was March. And you mentioned that you've been in Europe for a few months. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you did there, I don't know if it was in Rome or mm-hmm. elsewhere, but you spoke to a bunch of Dominicans about preaching. And yeah. Our, many of our listeners may know, but the Dominicans are are the order of preachers. So right. a Dominican no priest, pressure. Yeah. A Dominican priest will have after his name OP for order of preachers. So how did that go giving a talk on preaching to the order of preachers? And I have a very particular interest in this because I come from a Protestant background. I'm a Catholic convert and Protestants really, really, really value good preaching. They do, And And they
1: do it so well.
0: And they do it so well. Sometimes. I mean,
1: well, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: I I would say that the best preaching I've heard is Protestant preaching Mm -hmm. and And Fulton Sheen. Right. For sure. I mean, (laughs) yeah, there are exceptions, there are exceptions, but I think by and large, uh, you know, the, the Protestant, masters will be much better at homiletics than Catholic preachers. So how can the church do preaching better? I guess is, is my, is my broad question, but I am curious to know how the talk with the Dominicans went.
1: It was interesting. So I was really encouraged because I was in Rome and I was invited to speak to a group of English seminarians, a group of American seminarians and a group of Dominicans. And as a woman, you don't, generally get asked to speak to priests or seminarians. Yeah. And so I was really encouraged by that just in general, but then they also didn't want me to talk about women stuff. The Englishman wanted me to talk about evangelization the Americans wanted me to talk about suffering and the priesthood and the Dominicans wanted me to talk about preaching and I was like you guys you're treating me like I'm just a person I mean I was, I was just so excited because that can be a real struggle I think in the church and it's something that we're sort of figuring out
0: well it's out. great that they're, they're not just yeah like saying like you said asking you to talk about women's issues like right. how can we how can we better talk to women
1: in the church? which is also great sure like those a, things a are good and worthy topic
0: but women but can that, also they looked more. at me
1: and were just like oh you're a preacher and an evangelist and a person who has lived with suffering right speak to us on those topics. So it was with the Dominicans, it was a fairly short conference. Um, I, one of them who was there asked me to speak to the American seminarians about that as well. Um, so I, I mean, really what I was talking about was storytelling and preaching. I think that Storytelling is just incredibly important, and we should know this because this is you know one of the major ways that Jesus taught, right? And the Gospels are primarily stories. Right. I mean, John's got some theological treatise stuff going on, but other than but still that, stories. Exactly, exactly. He like interrupts a story to like pontificate right. for a little while, but it's it's very story based, and we as a culture have lost the ability to tell stories. And I think we as Catholics, particularly, I mean, we have these incredible stories of the saints, and we just whitewash out all of the details and all of the intricacy and all of the excitement and all of the struggles and all you've got less left is St. Francis snuggled a bunny. And you're like, well, also he's the most Christ-like man since Christ and the first person known with the stigmata. Maybe let's focus on that. And they're like, no, birds. Right. He had birds. And I think that we do the same thing with the stories of the gospels where we just we don't delve into this like it's a story, like it's an encounter with a person. We're so used to these stories that we kind of You know, and especially in our homiletics, they're not breaking open the gospel story. They're finding one thing that makes a point, and then they're maybe talking about that point. Maybe they're just talking and not making a point. Um, And I have heard, I have heard some good Catholic preaching. It's not emphasized in our tradition, at least in um, the modern American Catholic Church. I think largely because people are going to show up whether you're a good preacher or not because they're not there for your preaching, they're there for the Eucharist. For sure. And so there's and, and no desperation.
0: And that's how it should be. I mean, frankly, right? Right? you shouldn't Absolutely. go to church for the homily. But while you're there, it'd be great to hear some things that help you help, I, help form you. It's right? actually
1: enlightening. Yeah. yeah, so I was talking about this idea of storytelling. And I think that we, we have been telling our seminarians for years that stories are powerful sure. in homilies, but what they've heard is tell a funny story to warm up the crowd.
0: Oh, totally, yeah. The and then, joke. Oh my yeah, goodness,
1: yeah. Yeah, or like te- and you'll hear this a lot of times in like in retreats uh, talks and things like that where people just like tell a story because it's a good story and you're like, "Okay, but but if you break open the gospel and you're like, okay, look at the, and, um, the one that I used with the Dominicans, I said, look at the woman at the well, you know, Jesus walks up to her and here's this woman. And we, we know, because we've heard the story, we know that this woman is broken. We know that she's an outcast. We know that she's suffered a lot in her life, either by being divorced five times in a row or by five of her husbands dying. I mean, like this is hard stuff. And Jesus walks up to this woman, sends away the disciples, goes to her and says, give me a drink. Which, like, I don't know if you spent time in the Middle East, but, like, you don't get to the point for at least 15 minutes in a conversation. Like, there's all these pleasantries. There are requirements of ways that you greet each other. And Jesus is he's rude to her. And because he's rude, her walls start breaking down because she she just loses it. She's like, what are you even talking about? Like, why are you asking me for a drink? And I said, what if we look at this story and we really try and break down this encounter that Jesus is having with this woman and the way that sometimes the Lord pushes into our lives in really uncomfortable ways and like does things that make us unhappy because he's trying to get to our heart and he's trying to bring us this deep joy of being the bridegroom, right? Like when he meets her at the well, it's because he's bridegroom. Every person in scripture who meets a woman at a well marries her. Like that's, That's a theme, right? I mean, Isaac Stewart meets Rebecca, but then brings her back for Isaac to marry her. So we know that if he's meeting her at a well, it's because he wants to marry her. Like, that's what he's offering her. But sometimes the way that the Lord weds our soul is by first making us really uncomfortable and shining a light on our brokenness and then reaching into our brokenness and saying, I still want you. I was like, that's a very different experience of that story than most of the time where it I don't even know what the point of most homilies on that story are. Like she's an outcast, and Jesus liked her anyway.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think Jesus loves us despite our background,
1: right. right? And which is which True. is great. Sure. But like, yeah. got it. There's so much more, and so I was just encouraging the Dominicans and these seminarians and priests uh, to really soak in the stories of the gospel and you know with this Ignatian approach maybe this meditation of how would I have felt or or to to do the research and to find the connections and say look I can preach in a way where people are going to remember it and with the American seminarians particularly I was like y'all yeah, know Father Mike Schmitz right and they're like yep. yeah absolutely I was like do you remember that story? That he tells about the Chinese man who like it was discovered that he was Catholic and they start beating him with electrical cords and but he kept going to mass every day and eventually he escaped and he came to America and you know, he started working and he was still going to mass every day, but then he got busy and he stopped going every day and then he stopped going on Sundays, and he just wasn't going at all. And everyone's nodding, nodding, nodding. And I said, Do you remember anything else he said on that homily? And they all looked at me and they're like, no. And I was like, this is the power of storytelling. Yeah,
0: that's very true. If you,
1: and that story works because you remember the point of the story, even though you don't remember the rest of the homily. Like if we can tell the story of Jesus or tell the story of these saints in a powerful enough way, just the experience of the story transforms people's hearts and is a lasting encounter with the Lord and you can put in all kinds of other theology. You can make other points. You can right. give exhortations. That's great. But I just think it's so important that we have story as part of the way that we try and bring people to Jesus.
0: Yeah, I think so too, because it's story that motivates and engages those empathic responses. And I think that's why stories are better imprinted in our, in our memories than mm-hmm. if the homilist were to just talk to us about Aquinas's five ways, for example, right. you know, and list them off. That'd be a great homily. But it'd probably be very few people who remembered any one of those five ways walking out of the door. Mm-hmm. But if instead the homilists used story to connect with those people, they probably remember it a lot more easily.
1: And I think especially in the modern world, we're just, we're not good listeners. You know, I'm, I'm not a good listener naturally, but then you add in the fact that everything that I ever listen to is polished and perfect and brilliant because I have all of these media you know a hundred years ago the only time you ever heard somebody speak was your homilist right and so you didn't have an expectation that you were constantly going to be entertained and that everything was always going to be fascinating and so I think people were better able to listen then than they are now so the bar's higher now because you got to beat out the podcast. You got to beat out the YouTube videos. You got to beat out everything that is competing for their attention. And you're not naturally going to be a good homilist as a priest. Like that's not a reason to become a priest. You become a priest because you want to hand yourself over to Jesus Christ and his church. You want to be a bridegroom to the church. You want to be altar Christus. Like the preaching is sort of a side gig. Uh, And so I totally respect priests who aren't good preachers and who don't enjoy preaching. But I think that you can learn to tell a good story even if you aren't going to be totally charismatic and really brilliant and have all of these incredible insights like you can learn to tell a story
0: so what do you think lay people can do to help their priests be better homilists because it's kind of hard to give feedback on a homily mm-hmm. to a priest i mean it's it's easy to give encouraging words and i try to whenever i hear a good homily from a priest i try to go up to him afterwards and say thank you for the homily father i really appreciated that Um, But what about a bad homily? Is there, is it just praying for them? Is that the extent of it? Or do you think there's a way to give constructive feedback to a priest?
1: Uh So this is my new thing. Since the scandals hit in the church, I have decided that I'm going to be the change. And if I want to talk smack on a priest, I'm going to say it to his face first. And I, I mean, I talk a big game, but I hate conflict. And I really don't do well with conflict with authority, particularly with priests. Like, yeah, especially spiritual authority. It's just, sure. oh man, it's hard. Um, and I have now three times approached a priest after Mass to correct him on his homily. And I won't do it if it's just like, oh, I have some constructive criticism. It's if he says heresy. something... That is heretical or that is incredibly damaging, potentially damaging to people in the pew. So the first time was after the scandals broke when a priest said, uh, It's not the end of the world. These things happen. And and you can't do that. The second time was a priest who said, If you don't believe that Pope Francis is the perfect man for the job, then you are a heretic. Which, like, this has nothing to do with how you feel about Pope Francis. That's That's, not what the church teaches. That is, and I. You know, I was like, okay, well, Catherine of Siena would disagree. Right. So the first guy mostly just ignored me. Um, you know, he was polite, but he yeah. was like, well, I said those things on Sunday. And the second guy actually listened and I managed to keep it together enough to argue. Um, and eventually he said, yeah, you're right. And the third guy, I wrote the bishop after that encounter um, because it was Can you tell me about that not one? helpful. Um, so his issue, it was Father's Day and he was giving out candy to dads and he said, but not fake dads. What? Right. What? Right. Which already, I think this is like a dangerous Wait, what thing. What is a fake dad? Hold on. Uh, he just meant kids don't come up and get candy. But okay. to be funny, he said not fake dads, just real dads. Okay. And I was like, I know he's trying to be funny. I'm feeling for the stepdads who are sitting in this congregation right now with their like sullen teenage or, stepchildren who are looking at them like. Right. And then at the end of mass, he said, "Not fake dads or wanna be dads." And I was like, "And we're done."
0: Okay. Yeah. That's like you can too far.
1: Way too far. I get the I get the
0: sort of clumsily attempted joke.
1: Right. Exactly. The first time, but wannabe to exactly. be dads? I mean.
0: What about the couple who's been trying for exactly. three years to yeah. have a baby? And
1: I think, I mean, personally, I wrote a whole blog post on how to deal with Mother's Day in church, because I just think it's incredibly damaging to a lot of people. There's a lot of suffering that happens on Mother's Day and Father's Day, and it's a secular holiday, and you know, we can figure out a way not to hurt people. But this was like particularly bad. So I went up, at, you know, I prayed first, I prayed for him, I sent my guardian angel to talk to his guardian angel beforehand, I was like, we're going to do this, and he interrupted me, talked over me. Waved his hand in my face, made me cry, and then turned his back on me and walked away as I stood crying in front of the church. <laughs>
0: All right. Such... <sighs>
1: And mercifully, there was a, a couple of the parishioners came up there, like, we're so sorry, he's just like that. And there was another oh, priest who was standing there. He's just like that. And I went up to that other priest, and he, like, took my hand in his and looked me in the eye and was like, I am so sorry that that happened to you. Like, please, please, would you write the bishop? And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll the write the bishop. The priest asked you to write the bishop. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it was, I mean, it's really beautiful. If we've got any priests listening right now, I know you've spent your entire priesthood having to apologize for other priests' sins. Oh, it is so healing. It is so healing to have a priest apologize, and I actually shared about it on Twitter and I had two different priests who said on behalf of the priesthood will you please accept my apology and I was just like you have no idea what a beautiful thing that is to hear because it's I mean when your father makes you cry and then turns his back and walks away you know like that's a pretty upsetting thing um, anyway so that's one thing I think to actually correct priests when it's a real problem. Um, and I know that directly after Mass isn't the best time. That's when I'm there. Uh, I'm a hobo. I can't come into the office. And I also don't think I could pluck up the courage for that. I can do it in the moment right after Mass. I couldn't sit and think about it for 24 hours. Like I just couldn't. Um, but I know about one parish where actually the priest meets with a number of lay people the week before, before um so like on monday afternoon they've all read the next sunday's readings and he gets together with a group of lay people and they do like a bible study with the priest on the next sunday's readings and he writes his homily based,
0: based on, on wow.
1: their encounter and so then when they meet the next week they'll say like hey father that was really great you might want to try not to focusing so much on this thing or this came off a little bit wrong. And I mean, just the humility of that priest and the gift that that is, you know, like preaching is absolutely the, the purview of the, of clerics, right? Totally get that. But to have a community that's breaking up in the word, like what a blessing that is for those lay people, what a blessing it is for those priests, for the whole community. I mean, I heard someone, she wrote me about this and I was just like, that's incredible. It really is. Yeah. Why is that not, It it, it actually sounds
0: like something that one of our old priests wanted to do. He was in the Diocese of Belleville, a wonderful godly man. And just as we were leaving the church, I don't know what came of this, but just as we were leaving, he was trying to build a basically a lay homily committee to help him give feedback on his homilies so that he Mm -hmm. could
1: improve. Yeah. And,
0: And his homilies were already solid. He was, they were, they were always theologically accurate. They always pointed people to the Eucharist, which I really appreciated. He had a very strong Eucharistic devotion, but I think there's always room for improvement, right? Yeah. And just the, like you said, the humility that he had to do that was remarkable.
1: Mm-hmm. I think also, um, so one of my favorite books of all time is To Know Christ Jesus by Frank Sheed. Buy that for your I priest. I love Frank Sheed. Yeah, he's I amazing. And this book, I had read the Gospels 30 times before I read this book and it it blew them wide open for me. I wow. mean, it's just incredible. Um, so buy that book for your priest and tell him. Really, please, please read this. Uh, I'm actually working on a book right now that hopefully will be done soon. Are you the sole author? Yeah.
0: What's the, can you give us a topic?
1: Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a life of Christ. Okay. And so it's trying to break open the stories. The, the issue is, I think the, the stories of the gospel are too familiar, so we don't pay attention to them and they're too foreign. So we don't realize what's being said. And so I'm trying to, to do away with both of those issues, to break open the stories, to to flesh them out, to say, imagine what it was like. You know, Zacchaeus runs ahead and climbs a tree. How shameful must that have been? Can you imagine the people like jeering from below because they just absolutely disdained this man as well as despising him. But then also saying, okay, Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, this is a feast that celebrates the pillar of fire and the water from the rock. And Jesus comes into this ceremony that's all about light and water. And he says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the source of living water. This is now a much bigger thing. It makes sense, yeah. It's all contextualized just, exactly, um, and and so it's you know hopefully going to be really heavily indexed both topically and scripturally. And I've got tons of references to other scriptures and trying to just connect everything and pull it all together. And my hope is that I mean that'll be something that r- lay people can sit down and read cover to cover, you know, book clubs or whatever. But also that we can give this to our clerics and say, hey, this can help break some stuff open. You know, it's not it's not just a heavy. Commentary. It's really saying, let's look at at the the entirety of this story and try and figure out what the Lord is trying to speak to our hearts in this story. So I'm really excited about it.
0: That sounds awesome. Yeah, I would love to talk to you again.
1: It, it feels like the. Do, do
0: you have a book contract already?
1: I don't. Okay. No. Uh, if anybody's got an in with a publisher, you can you can chat with me. You can let me know. I may
0: mean, actually we, um, can, we can talk later.
1: Yeah, I've had I've had a couple of bites um, okay, from great. some publishers, but I'm I'm kind of trying to figure that out. But yeah, it just feels. It feels like the most important thing I've ever done. This That's book, awesome. Actually, I'm
0: so excited. Yeah. So your work reminds me of two things, sort of a set of things, but Benedict, uh, Benedict the 16th, Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm, Philogy, mm-hmm. incredible, some of yeah. the best books I've ever read because yeah. he does a lot of that. He he sets the scene and says, you know, at the Feast of Tabernacles, this is what they were talking about. Right. And so as I was reading those, it just unlocked for me so mm-hmm. much of the gospels. Mm-hmm. And similarly, Brant Petrae's Jesus and the Jewish really Roots of yeah. Mary or Jesus yeah. and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Also just incredible stuff. That sets a context like you'd never you'd never thought of before. Mm-hmm. Um, the the sort of bad example uh, is Rob Bell. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. Mm-hmm. He's a Protestant pastor. Um, he has a book called What Is the Bible, and and that's the, the subtitle is something like how a collection of stories, love poems, etc. can change your life. It's something like that. Okay. Um, I read it earlier this year. The first half of the book, maybe the first third of the book, is really really good because he's just opening the Bible for people and mm-hmm. saying like, there's so much more then meets the eye here. And, you know, every, every word that's carefully chosen is chosen for a reason. And right. there's just so much that you can right. say about every word and turn of phrase and concept and idea. And so that's really cool. He sort of goes off the rails in the second two thirds of the book. Um, and if you know anything about Rob Bell's history, like mm-hmm. he, he's, he's kind of a, a controversial guy, a lightning rod for several reasons. He's flirted with, you know, apocastasis, universal reconciliation, and those sorts of ideas. So I do not endorse his work, uh, broadly, but like the first third of that was just interesting because he was trying to open up the Bible for people and say, there's more to this than meets Mm -hmm. the eye. So your project reminds me of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited about it. I just, the Lord needs to make some time in my life for me to get things done, but the whole first draft is done. So it shouldn't be great. Too impossible.
0: Well, you mentioned scandal. I want to just unpack this a little bit. Um, I became a Catholic four years ago and the church, of course, since 2002, has been dealing with the uh, public revelation of sexual abuse, and then the latest round of this for the past year and a half or so. Mm-hmm. Um, are you excited to be a Catholic now?
1: Yeah, I always am. I. So I think part of what makes it easier for me is that I have not been personally touched by Absolutely. clerical abuse, and I really, really, really do. Sympathize. Um, I I don't want to say I understand because uh, I don't understand. But I have such compassion uh, for people who, because they themselves have been hurt, because people they love are survivors who just can't anymore. I I get that, and I I can't point fingers. I think after all of this broke last summer. A lot of people wanted to say, well, if, if you can't be Catholic after this, then you were never that Catholic in the first place. And I just want to throw punch them all because like, you don't, you don't get to judge somebody else's PTSD. Like that's not, that's not cool ever. And you know, people can be deeply in love with Jesus and also so horrifically wounded that they can't draw near to him in the church anymore. And I understand that. Um, I also was just never under the illusion that priests are particularly holy.
0: Right. I think, I think that's a really important point that cannot get lost in this. Yeah. Is we can't elevate priests to be more than what they are.
1: Yeah. And I think I've been thinking about this recently. Um, I think the reason for Catholics that this is so heartbreaking isn't necessarily that we thought that priests should be holy, but that there are fathers. And it doesn't matter what you expected from your father. If this is what you get, it's going to break you. Absolutely. In some capacity. And that's an incredible gift of the priesthood. Just knowing as a priest that when you love somebody, it utterly transforms their experience of God the Father's love. But it's also a great hazard knowing that if you're short with somebody, if you're cruel to somebody, if you're just having a bad day and you're rude to somebody, that can be really, really damaging. I think for me, I was just always aware that there is evil and that people do terrible things. It The, the most recent round has been much harder, I think, because we began to see how broad the cover-up was. 2002, yes, there was cover-up, but you could say, okay, but they didn't know you know, they were told by psychologists that pedophilia is like alcoholism and it can be cured with therapy, which also alcoholism can be cured with therapy. But, and you know. I think know,
0: the problem was more geographically circumscribed as yes, well. Yes,
1: yes, it didn't feel as universal. I think this last round, we were like, okay, hang on. We had come to terms with the fact that some people are sickos. But you're telling me there are some people who aren't sickos who just let sickos get away with horrific things because it would be awkward to deal with.
0: Or it? just a yeah bureaucratic mess or a PR nightmare. Like or-
1: we have we've been sacrificing children on the altar of comfort, which I mean, if we're going to stand up as a pro-life church and take a stand against abortion, how on earth? earth do you to keep your fancy house and not make things uncomfortable in the chancery allow children to be sexually assaulted and i think that's what people have been so frustrated by is it just has begun to seem like we just don't have good bishops you know that all of our bishops are just politicians and i and it's not true it's not true but i i our system doesn't select for holiness right. when it comes to bishops.
0: Yeah. I don't think it's true that all bishops are bad. Or no, that we don't have good bishops. No. I do think it's true that not all bishops are good. Right. For and sure. And that we have some bishops who are politicians. And, and who- that,
1: that being a bishop is, not, is generally a good indicator. Uh, maybe I don't want to say that. It is difficult to become a bishop if you are, spending a lot of time in silent prayer, a lot of time in hospital ministry and a lot of time with the homeless. Yes. Because you're not fundraising, you're not schmoozing, you're not which doesn't mean, I mean you look at someone like Fa, like Bishop Barron. Like he's a good man who loves Jesus Christ and is serving the gospel, Full right? Machine. Like exactly. Yeah. There are definitely good bishops out there, but I think that it is harder to become a bishop if you're trying to be a saint than if you're trying to be a politician.
0: I think that absolutely makes sense. You know, I think Frank Sheed on this point is really good. I read uh, a book uh, by Frank Sheed called Map of Life earlier this year. Mm -hmm. Really short, easy read. But he talks about the magisterium. He talks about the infallibility of the magisterium on faith and morals. And one of the points he makes is that people often misunderstand this to to understand that uh, bishops are infallible. Mm -hmm. Not just that the magisterium as a whole is infallible on faith and morals, but that each bishop himself is morally (laughs) above reproach. And he said, no, actually... Uh, the fact of being a bishop, or even the fact of being a pope, doesn't make any man farther or closer to sainthood. Right. It it just means that that person's protected from error when they're exercising their office in a very specific capacity.
1: I mean, the fathers are pretty clear that it's very dangerous to be yeah. a bishop. It is. I mean, you accept the mitre at great spiritual peril because the devil's going to be out to get you at that point, even more than when you were a priest, even more than when you were just a baptized lay person. And then you combine that with the amount of money that can get involved in this country, you know, in other countries it's different. Um, And again, I don't in any way want to indicate that if somebody is a bishop, we should assume that person is not a good person, but that it, it makes sense when you see these bishops and the choices that they've made, it it makes sense when you say, okay, maybe the way that we need to choose our bishops should be a little bit different.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think we, we should have the Episcopal office be less concerned with, Bureaucracy than it currently is. Mm-hmm. I think that what the modern bishop has to deal with in running a staff of, in some cases, hundreds mm-hmm. of people in the diocesan or archdiocesan offices and overseeing uh, all the details of diocesan schools and diocesan right. PR campaigns and, and huge Twitter accounts. And
1: in this country. Yeah, massive. Huge dioceses. I mean,
0: multiple auxiliary bishops for right. some archdioceses. I think instead of having that, it would be great if we could l- let bishops get back to being pastors of the pastors, Mm -hmm. um, and really being the overseers of the church rather than running these massive bureaucracies.
1: And some of them have figured out a way to do it. And honestly, you can be a very holy man and be a bad Bishop, you know, like it's, it's a totally possible thing. And yeah, I, I just, I come at every priest and Bishop, really every person that I meet with the assumption, this person is probably incredibly holy. That is always my assumption. And when when people do things that they shouldn't be doing, I wanna try and figure out a way. Is there a way that I can spin this or I can understand where they're coming from, why they would say this, whatever. But I'm never surprised when that's not the case. I just know that for myself, I have to choose to have that perspective because otherwise I'm only ever gonna see flaws. But because I'm naturally fairly pessimistic about human nature, it's never shocking to me when somebody does something atrocious.
0: So what do you say when someone says, Meg, how can you still be a Catholic in this era when the Catholic church is going through all of this? Have you had that question before?
1: Yeah, I think I, I was pretty vocal about it when this was all hitting last summer. Uh, and so I think a lot of people were kind of like, okay, I get where you're coming from. And I, for me, like it's true. And Jesus is present in the Eucharist and I will fight But I'm going to fight from within because I can't leave Jesus. I thought it was really providential that a week and a half after the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, we had the passage from John 6 where Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I think that's been the cry of a lot of Catholics in the last year. Like, this is awful and it's miserable and it doesn't make any sense, but it's the only place with the Eucharist. So I'm staying.
0: Right. I think that's spot on. I've had the same question and especially as a convert, I think Mm -hmm. uh, as someone who recently relatively recently entered the church, the question is a, why did you do it? And B, why did you stay Mm -hmm. or why are you staying? And for me, the question always has a few parts of the answer. The first part is what you said that it's true, right? So I'm not in the church because I hear good preaching. We already talked about how the preaching is often very bad. I'm not in the church because I like good music. We haven't even talked about, music at catholic <laughs> masses but that's a whole other thing uh i'm yeah. in the church because it's true mm-hmm. or because i believe it is true mm-hmm. um
1: and sometimes the preaching is great and sometimes the music is great
0: sure yeah i, I often
1: I, get very like down on Catholics. some people are like hey now and i'm like Okay, sorry, but there are certainly amazing experiences in this country, but generally speaking, in American Catholicism, if you're looking for preaching and music, you're not going to find the best in town at the Catholic Church, Exactly. generally speaking. Uh,
0: Thank you for clarifying that. I also (laughs) don't want to be accused of ripping on Catholicism too much. So, yeah, the the thing is it's true, right? And so I'm here because it's true. Well, then I think the rebuttal could be, if it's true, why are people acting this way, right? If it's Mm -hmm. true, why are the clerics doing it? And I think that's a valid point to consider but for me one of the things i see is in the gospels when jesus is talking and saying woe to you who causes one of these little ones to stumble i think a lot of us look at that passage and think okay this is good like don't hurt children right well when i studied that passage over the past year i realized that jesus isn't talking to a big crowd of people he's talking to the apostles Mm. he's talking to the first bishops right Mm. and he's saying woe to you if you cause one of these children, these children to stumble. And I think when I realized that I was like, this is not a problem that was unforeseen Mm -hmm. by Christ. And like we've, we've been discussing in this conversation, our clerics are not necessarily more holy people than us. And they're still prone to all the vicissitudes and all the psychological pathologies that Mm -hmm. anyone else is victim to. But Christ still is present in his church. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why I became Catholic and that's why I'm still Catholic.
1: Well, and I think that passage also helps me to understand some of these bishops because when we hear scandal, what we assume is like, Oh, pearl clutching. Like I'm scandalized. Right. But what scandal actually means is people being drawn away from Christ. Exactly. And I think when they're trying to avoid scandal by sweeping things under the rug, they weren't trying necessarily to keep people from being shocked. They were trying to keep people from turning from Christ in the church is that if people find out that this priest has done this, souls will be lost. Right. And they didn't realize that it was a greater peril for Priest to be allowed to continue doing these things because not only because of how it hurt those children, but because of how it damaged souls of people who then would turn from the church because they had been hurt or people who would find out about it years later. Again, we can deal with the sin. It's the cover up that really messes with people.
0: All right. Well, I think we're almost out of time, Meg. <laughs> but before we before we go, I want to ask you, what are the books that you think every Catholic today should read? And I told you I was going to ask you this question The first draft of this question was, what book should every Catholic read? And then you (laughs) said that you had six. I do. So I want to hear all six.
1: All right, perfect. So the, my very favorite book of all time, which is an enormous statement because I live in a car and have 150 a really books. really big statement. So that's wow. like
0: I, I don't think I can narrow it down to one.
1: I finally have, and I, I'm content. This is my choice. The Bible. It's, <laughs> well, that doesn't count. Bible and catechism <laughs> don't count. Practice of the Love of Jesus Christ by St. Alphonsus Liguori. Okay. It's 99 cents on Kindle. You want the copy with the red cover with the crucifix. That's the um, translation I can vouch for. If you took out every word that St. Alphonsus himself wrote, it would still be my favorite book because he is so brilliant at quoting other saints that it's, I mean, it's just life-changing. It's wow. utterly brilliant. It's this 99 cents. Is a big cents. book
0: or is this a pretty digestible read?
1: Um, it's, you know, I have it on Kindle, so I don't know how thick okay, it is, yeah. um, but it's something you don't have to read the whole book. You know, you read one paragraph and you can meditate on that for a month. So it's, it's kind of something, it's a great book to pick up for Lent or a book to say, I'm going to read just like one section every day you and know which one more time what's the name of it minutes. The Practice of the Love of Jesus Christ okay by Alphonsus Liguori
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna look all these up and include show notes perfect uh, links in the show notes uh,
1: number two is On Being Catholic by Thomas Howard Thomas Howard is a convert from uh, Evangelical Christianity he's um, Elizabeth Elliot's brother if you were involved in Evangelical women stuff in the 90s Elizabeth Elliot was like the stuff
0: I, I, I remember, remember reading Mark of a Man yeah
1: Elizabeth yeah she's great and i um, read
0: um thomas howard uh, lead kindly light
1: oh okay. became Catholic. Never, that was a, that, that was a pretty
0: big influence on yeah my decision to become Catholic.
1: so a lot of what he does is apologetics this book is just a love letter to the church it's beautiful it's poetic it has the best thing i've ever read on the mass his chapter on the mass is the best thing i've ever read on the mass uh, i always caution people you want to read it with a dictionary so that's one that i would say you might want to get on kindle because he just has this remarkable vocabulary. He's an English professor by background. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So On Being Catholic by Thomas Howard. Number three is To Know Christ Jesus by Frank Sheed, which is the one that I brought up before. Just a brilliant exposition of the life of Christ. Number four is Brant Petrie's Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist.
0: Love it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I had been preaching on the Eucharist for like 20 years and I read that book and I was like, Oh shoot. How is there still stuff? I don't know.
0: Have you read his Jesus and the Jewish roots of Mary? Yeah. Yes. So yes. good. I also. liked,
1: I liked that one a lot. I felt like that was a little bit less, um, I was less blindsided by the revelations sure, in those. Yeah. Cause I've, I've struggled enough with Mary that I've read a lot more, I think to try and understand. Um, and then numbers five and six are, um, Modern Saints by Anne Ball, volumes one and two. So I was not into the saints for really my whole life and I was kind of okay that they existed. And then I read those two books and I was like, oh shoot, like this is the storytelling. Like this, these people are amazing and you can l- see how... What holiness can look like in your life. You can see the diversity of this canon of saints that we have. She just tells the story really well, and it has utterly transformed my. Relationship with the saints, and I'm now like that's the, probably the thing that I'm best known for is you know being the saint ninja and knowing like a million random saints, and it's because I read her books.
0: Does saint ninja.com also redirect
1: saint ninja.com? The- <laughs> does not, but the hashtag saint ninja on social media all right, will excellent. send you to all of my various different saint pairings with people.
0: Yeah, you know, Sally and I, since becoming Catholic, have really built up a devotion to various saints. Mm -hmm. And it's one of my favorite things about being Catholic because, you know, I think one of the, one of the wonderful things about Christianity and Catholicism specifically is that it's such an incarnational faith. And so like when we say that we believe this is Jesus body and this is Jesus blood, we really mean it. It's not just a symbol, right? It's actual substance. And when we look at the lives of the saints, what we see is the grace of Christ permeating and penetrating our world here you Mm -hmm. know i just read this sci-fi novel that called the real world terra firma right so it's it's like supernatural grace penetrating terra firma Mm. and transforming it and it's so cool to be able to access that in the lives of the saints yeah super exciting so i'll add so is that five and six yes volumes one and two okay well on this note of the saints then on on a final note to close on as the saint ninja who's your favorite saint right now or one of your favorite saints what what saint is preoccupying your thoughts and devotion these days. I
1: like, uh, I like the phrase favorite saint right now because it is a thing that changes all the time. Um, but it's a different question. The one who's preoccupying my devotion. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the guy who's been my best saint friend. Okay. I actually learned about him in Colorado Springs two nice. years ago for all no right. reason at all. I just found him on the internet, but I happened to be okay. in Colorado Springs. Blessed Peter Kibe. We just had his feast day you on spell July that? 1st. Peter Kibe. K-I-B-E is his last name. Um, or I guess. Yeah. Petrus Kasuikibe is his Japanese name. Um, Petrus is his his baptismal name. Anyway, so he was born in 1587 to a Christian samurai family. So uh, Francis Xavier got to Japan in 1549. So it was like sort of first wave of cradle Catholics in Japan. He went to Jesuit schools as a kid, decided he wanted to be a Jesuit, went to the Jesuits, was like, I want to be a Jesuit. They're like, "Mm, we're not sure you're really committed enough. So he was like, okay, can I like volunteer for a year? And they said, okay. So he volunteered with them for eight years. And then in 1614, the shogun kicked all foreign missionaries out of Japan. So they're getting ready to leave. And they're like, sorry, Kibe, we got to leave. And he was like, but oh, I'll get my stuff. But
0: he's stuff. not a Jesuit, so he doesn't have to He's leave. not a
1: Jesuit, and he's Japanese. Okay, so okay, like, yeah, even, yeah, yeah. even if he were, I don't, I don't know that he would have had to leave. I think it was just being Western that okay. you had to get out. And so he was like, I'll get my stuff. And they were like, no, 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 you don't have to leave because you're Japanese. And he was like, oh, is there someone here who's going to ordain me? No, cool, I'll get my stuff. So he sails with them to Portuguese Macau, uh, which is right by Hong Kong in China. And he goes to seminary there and they're like, yeah, we don't ordain Japanese people, which like, probably is racist but also it was a really complicated time and the gospel was new in Japan and they had just shut the doors to the west and so you know maybe it wasn't racist but probably it was probably racist and then so he's like okay so he sails to Goa to southwest India where St. Francis Xavier had founded a seminary for the purpose of for, forming native clergy
0: and southwest India is where the St. Thomas Christians are
1: right, right exactly down. where like the Portuguese got there in the 15th century and they're like we want to tell you about Jesus and they're, they're, like, like, no, they're like oh we do Saint you want to come Thomas. to our church like <laughs> father's busy right now but yeah. he'll be back in just a minute he can hear your confession right right. like oh wait what so he goes to goa and he goes to seminary there and it had been like just destroyed since xavier had been there and they said yeah we don't actually ordain native clergy we don't ordain asians and like again if it was me i would be like fine i'll build my own church like i don't need you people but he's a saint and i'm a jerk so he decides he'll go to rome i guess he was sick of boats because he walked
0: Wait, walked from... From India. India to Rome.
1: Yeah, well, he he didn't make it all the way to Rome. He was like, while I'm on this side of the planet, I might as well go to the Holy Land. So he walks 3,700 miles from India to Jerusalem, becomes the first ever Japanese person to enter Jerusalem. Then he makes his way the rest of the way to... Italy, and he gets to Rome, and he's like, "Will you ordain me?" And they were like, "Dude, we literally have no idea who you are." He was like, "Oh my gosh, ask me anything." So they quiz him. Six months later, they ordain him a deacon. A week Pres- after presumably
0: that, presumably they ask him theological questions. Right, right, exactly, yeah. and not just Make sure like he was trained, mathematical
1: yeah. or whatever. <laughs> uh, a week after that, he's ordained a priest. Right, so like deacon to priest in one week. Wow. And then they're like, "Great, now you're a priest, and you can just like rest and live in community." And he's like, "Oh no, I'm going back to Japan," and they're like. Yeah, they're uh, they're killing Christians in right. Japan and he was like, yeah. And they said, "No, they're wrapping them in straw mats and setting them on fire. They're hanging them on crosses at the edge of the ocean letting the tide kill them. They're hanging them upside down sealed in pits of human waste and human remains. They are killing Christians in Japan." And he said, "Send me back." They're like, "Hi man, so he sails to Goa. It takes him 14 months to get to Goa. It took me 14 months to get to Goa. I'd be like, I live here now. I like her. This is yeah. great." Uh, but I mean, he keeps you going. Can, you could
0: almost walk back faster
1: than Right, that. exactly. He, he sails to Portuguese Macau, asks for a ship to Japan, and they said, no, we don't send Christians to Japan. He said, I know, they'll set me on fire, whatever. They're like, no, we don't send Christians to Japan, because if we send Christians to Japan, they send warships back. So he spends two years trying to get a boat. He can't do it. He sails to Thailand. Two years trying to get a boat, can't do it. Sails to...
0: How old is he at this point? He's got to be like middle-aged...
1: Um, so he, he leaves Siam in 1628 and he was born in 1587. So he's 41. Okay. Um, he finally goes to the Philippines. He's like, all right, Philippines. Like y'all know how to Catholic. Let's do this. They're like, we won't, we don't send Christian Japan. So he just gets a hammer and some nails, and he builds himself a ship to sail across a thousand miles of Pacific Ocean. They inspect the ship. It's been eaten by termites. He was like, freaking stick your fingers in the holes. Like, we are not playing this game. We are getting on this boat. So they get on the boat. They're within sight of Japan, and they're hit by a typhoon and shipwrecked. And he comes to on this island off the coast of Japan. He was like, are we in Japan? And they're like, no, you're in Kyushu. And he said, oh, thank God. And they were like, ooh, you might have a concussion. Bro, this is not Japan. And he was like, no, this is the island that Francis Xavier sailed to Japan from. Wow. Can I borrow a fishing boat? It took him eight years to get from Europe to Japan. It took him 24 years from when he first asked to be a Jesuit priest in Japan until he finally made it back ordained to Japan, all the while knowing he was on his way to torture and certain death. And for nine years, he lived like an animal, sleeping in caves, moving only under cover of darkness. But people came because they knew that the mass made them Catholic because they were desperate for confession. And eventually he was betrayed and he was captured by the Japanese. And I don't know. Have you seen Silence?
0: No, but I'm familiar um, with it. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. The book is incredible. The movie by Scorsese is also excellent. Liam Neeson's character is a real historical personage. So he walks in a Portuguese priest who had denied Jesus and started working for the Japanese. Right, right. And he starts, you know, trying to talk Kibe out of Christianity. And Kibe just like, let me hear your confession and then come and die with me.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: And... That gives me chills. and Right? And Frere was like, yeah, I can't do that. So they send in Inoue, the master torture of all of Japan, who had killed thousands of Christians and broken thousands more. He was so good at what he did. There were two other priests who were captured with Kibe, and they both gave in on day one. Kibe on day 10 was still hanging upside down, singing praise to God. Nobody else was denying Jesus because of the witness of this priest. So they said, this is a man who will never say, I give up. They cut him down, built a fire on his stomach, and pulled out his insides. The most determined man on the face of the planet. That's incredible. Right?
0: Thank you for sharing that story. Right?
1: Don't you want this to be a movie? Like. Yeah. Okay. So. That's. He's amazing. He's so great. He was just beatified a couple years ago.
0: Peter Kibay, K. Blessed Peter Kebay. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully on his way to full canonization.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, he's the headliner, so it's Blessed Peter Kibay and 187 Companions. So, So yeah. Was he he betrayed
0: with 177?
1: No, so that's just the next wave of okay. Japanese martyrs okay, who you. are coming up. So the first was Paul Miki and 26 right. companions, yep. I think. Yep. And so this is Kibe and 187 companions, but it was it's sort of throughout this age of persecution got of it. the 17th century.
0: That is absolutely incredible. Yeah, oh. he's
1: amazing.
0: Blessed Peter Kibe, pray for us.
1: Amen.
0: That's great. Well, Meg, thank you so much for joining us on Credo Catholic. I'm, I was really excited to talk to you, and I'm glad we could make this happen. For our listeners, if you want to check out Meg's work, just search Hobo for Christ or go to Hoboforchrist.com or piercedhands.com. That'll take you to her landing page where you can see her blog. You can also go to uh, her Instagram, M Hunter Kilmer, or Twitter at Meg Hunter Kilmer. K-I-L-M-E-R. Facebook so
1: too, if you're old. Yeah.
0: What's the Facebook? Mm-hmm. Do you know the uh,
1: oh. search for Meg Hunter Kilmer speaker. Um, all right. And you can follow me on there. All kinds of stuff going on there.
0: Sounds good. Thanks so much, Meg.
1: Thank you.